Welcome to the Veritas Mizzou podcast. Veritas is the college ministry of The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri. Our greatest hope is to see more and more college students believe that Jesus is more. To get connected, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you're encouraged by this message. Hey, Veritas. Good to see you guys, sort of. Uh, This is Austin coming to you from The Crossing, and this is our first ever Veritas on Instagram Live. So whether you're watching in an apartment uh, with some friends, whether you are by yourself back home, uh, we're really glad that you chose to be here with us tonight. Before I start the sermon, I want to do just a couple housekeeping things. First, if you have a Bible and you want to get it out, go ahead and do that now. We're going to be going through some different scriptures tonight. And second, if you know somebody who's not able to be here with us on the live Instagram feed, uh, that's okay. We're going to have this hopefully on our video tomorrow, uh, but definitely on the audio podcast. So go ahead and share that with them uh, if you think they would want to hear it. Let me pray first, and and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this day. Thank you for the miracles of technology. Um, It is such a blessing to be able to still communicate and to, in some sense, be together, uh, most importantly, to hear from you. Um, God, we know uh, this is a very uncertain time. Things are changing, and yet you are still in control, uh, and you are ruling and reigning. And so we are putting our hope in you now. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When you're isolated, do you make better or worse decisions? When you're stressed out, do you have better or worse perspective on life? When you're by yourself, do you think through things clearly? Yeah, me either. Not only do isolation and stress breed bad decisions, I think they feed off one another. You see, when we're stressed, we tend to isolate. And when we're isolated, we tend to get more stressed. When we're isolated and stressed, we start trusting our own instincts. We stop listening to others. We start rationalizing and talk ourselves into doing things that we wouldn't otherwise do if we had somebody there with us. If that's true in normal times, how much more is it true for us today right now? If we thought we were isolated before, we didn't really know what we're saying. And really, we still might not know what we're saying. You see, the coronavirus, it's a part of our daily lives. As of now, there's not a confirmed case in Colombia, but there probably will be. The CDC, right, recommending that people stay six feet apart, and even the U.S. government is is saying no gatherings over ten people for the next few days. In the last week, maybe you have too, I've asked myself all sorts of questions in the face of the isolation that is here and probably will continue. What's my job going to look like? How am I going to spend my free time? Me personally, what are we going to do with our kids since they're coming home from school? Those aren't wrong questions to be asking, but I was convicted at how long it took me to answer maybe the most important question of all. How am I going to follow Jesus in this coming isolation? 
Yes, life's changing at a rapid pace. And yet, God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Yes, our routines and our habits and our expectations, they have, and they will continue to change. But God's mission hasn't changed. The coronavirus, it changes nothing. You and I, we are still called to follow Jesus wherever we are. Jesus, in the New Testament Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, he says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Verse 38, this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I see Christians in all times and in all places, we're called to love God and to love others. We are called to be the means by which God's kingdom of love and justice and mercy spreads throughout the entire world. In all times and all places, we are called to give allegiance to King Jesus in every single area of our lives especially in our sexuality. Tonight, we are finishing up our Hey Sermon series and discussing that final question about sex. Specifically, the question is, can I be close to God and still have sex? Now, I get it. On first glance, that might not seem to be the most relevant question to ask and discuss right now, given given everything that's going on in the world right now. But if you think about it, it's actually a really relevant question because many of us, if not all of us in some ways, we make poor decisions sexually when we're isolated and when we're stressed. When we're isolated, we rationalize and we talk ourselves into making poor choices. When we're stressed, we use sex in lots of different ways and forms to cope with stress, to get a sort of sense of control in a world that seems out of control. Now, now I want to be honest, whoever asked that question, can I be close to God and still have sex, I'm glad you asked the question, but I'm not really sure what you were really asking. Is, Is that question trying to ask, can I have a faithful and satisfying and loving, guilt free relationship with God and at the very same time continue to have sex or experiment sexually with somebody else? Maybe. Or is that question, can I be close to God and still have sex, is that asking, do my past sexual sins, even my current sexual sins that I'm ashamed of and that I'm fighting against, do those things disqualify me from having a place in God's kingdom, from following Jesus, from having that faithful, satisfying, loving relationship with God? That's a good question, too. To be honest, I don't know the intent of that question, but in some sense it doesn't really matter. Because in our passage that we're going to read through tonight, God has something to say to both of those questions and to everything else in between. God has something to say to us about sex tonight. And so for those of us who are fighting to follow Jesus with our sexuality, in Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to learn three critical truths that we need to know in order to follow Jesus with our sexuality. So if you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to pick it up in verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Okay, so the first truth, 
God is not surprised by sexual sin. We're going to spend some time on this point, so buckle up. Verse 5, it says that everyone who is sexually immoral and impure... So the book of Ephesians, right, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Christians. And the reason that Paul is writing and talking about this issue is because there are Christians in this church who are sinning sexually. You see, to sin sexually is to fall short of God's vision for sex. We're going to talk about what that is in just a minute. But for now, I want us to hear two things. First, I want us to hear that sexual sin includes outward actions. We've sinned sexually when we've willingly engaged and indulged in any form of sexual experimentation outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. And now notice that I'm talking only about consensual experiences here. It doesn't matter uh, if you've experimented sexually with somebody you never met, or with somebody you want to be your boyfriend or girlfriend, or if it's with your current boyfriend or girlfriend, or even if you have a fiancé. Right? I know your intent is there, but you're, you're just almost not there. Right? You're not married yet. And now when I say sexual experimentation, I'm talking about any and everything that happens at first base, second base, third base, fourth base, any other base that people have invented. Right? So, so sexual sin includes outward consensual actions. But second, sexual sin also includes inward heart responses. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. And now Jesus is referencing the seventh commandment, way back in Exodus chapter 20. And that commandment is speaking to the outward act of physically cheating on your spouse, committing adultery. But then we get to verse 28. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman or a man lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Do you see what Jesus did there? He equated the inward response of lusting after a man or a woman who is not our spouse with the outward physical act of committing adultery. You see, to Jesus, the outward physical acts and the inward heart responses, they're both sinful. Let me say a little more, a little, little bit of a different way. Lusting after somebody in your heart who is not your spouse is just as much of a sin as it is if we're having sex with someone who is not our spouse. And so to answer that, that first part of that question at the very beginning, can I have a loving and a faithful relationship with God and at the very same time continue to indulge and experiment sexually without any problem, without any sort of stopping or any sort of scruples, uh, the answer is no. You see, that is not characteristic of a Jesus follower. If we're following Jesus, we are fighting against a sexual sin, not indulging it, not tolerating it. Not giving into it. But, but, but let me clarify a little bit what I mean when I say lusting. I think Ben Stewart, he captured it best in his book, Single, Dating, Engaged, and Married. He says this about lust. Lust says, I only want the parts of you that I can use. Lust wants to use someone for their own selfish benefit. And so because of that, we can lust after someone, of course, sexually. When we do this, our hearts say, I want you for my own sexual fulfillment, regardless of your intent or not, at your own expense. 
This could be of an actual person. We can lust after an actual person's body. We can lust after a picture of someone's body. We can lust after a video of someone in a pornographic video. You see, pornography is the most extreme example of depersonalized sex. It tears apart what was meant to be integrated. It disconnects the person's body, male or female, from any interest in who they are as a person who's created in the image of God. Because that person on the other side of the screen, they are somewhere in the world, and they are made in God's image and have dignity and value. And they're not meant to be used for our own expense. When that person becomes the means of my own personal sexual fulfillment, well, well, that is the heart of the sin of lust. But lusting, it doesn't just take sexual forms. We can also lust after someone emotionally, too. We do this when our hearts say, I want you for my own emotional and my own relational security. Or maybe it's, I need you to be there for me. It starts and it ends with me. This might happen when we share extremely intimate and personal details about our own story for the sole purpose of getting someone to connect with us, regardless of what they think or without thinking of them. Emotional lusting can happen when we create and indulge a fantasy about what a relationship with another person would be like, where we become the center of that story. This is a form of lust because we become the center of that fantasy and we use the other person to give us that connection and stability and validation that we are craving. And when we do that, we are using them for our own selfish benefit. And so how do you lust? What forms does your lust take? What is contributing to that lust? well-known quick story here. There's, there's two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at the, the, the two young fish and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? The two young fish, a little confused, and they swim on by, and eventually one fish looks at the other and says, What the heck is water? Right? Are, are you aware of the water that you're swimming in? Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. The choice to lust after somebody, that's a sinful heart response, sinful choice that we make in our hearts and in our bodies. And at the very same time, our hearts and our bodies are shaped by the things that we surround ourselves with, by the things that we consume. And so what do you spend your free time watching? What will you be watching in the next few weeks? You're going to have a lot of free time to binge. What are you going to do? What are you going to consume? How do you think those are going to shape and impact you? What lessons will they be teaching you? You see, shows and movies with tons of explicit visual sexual content, they're going to move our hearts to sexually lust a lot more naturally. And the shows and movies that promote and encourage us to indulge relational and emotional fantasies with somebody who's not our spouse, that's going to move our hearts to emotionally lust more naturally. You see, the things that we consume, the shows and the movies and the media that we open ourselves up to, that impacts us, that shapes us, whether we know it or not. So, sexual sin, it includes consensual outward physical acts, but it also includes inward heart responses. Now, here's the deal. The reality is that every single person has sinned sexually in some way. Single, dating, engaged, married. But remember, remember, God is not surprised by it. Some of you, you really need to hear this right now because you are weighed 
down with shame and guilt from your past or your current sexual sins. You're trying to hide it from other people. You're trying to to hide it even from God. That doesn't make sense. That's a rationalization that you're thinking about by yourself because you can't hide it from God. I don't know what your past or present sexual sins are. I, I, I don't know what those are. Others might not even know what those are either, but God knows, right? Psalm 139, verses 1 through 3. You have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all of my ways. God knows everything going on in the lives of every single person on this earth. He knows our thoughts before we think them. He knows what we're going to feel before we do. So he's not surprised by that sexual sin. So so tell him about it. Come to him with it. The next truth from these verses in Ephesians 5 that we need to hear about sex is that people will tell us lies about sex. Ephesians 5 verse 6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. That word empty, it has the sense of being worthless. It has no basis in truth. It's, It's simply put, it's a lie. For us to know if someone is deceiving us with empty, worthless, truthless words about sex, we actually have to know what is true, what is right about sex. We have to know God's vision and his intent for sex. And so briefly, I want to talk about three things that we need to know about God's vision and intent for sex. These aren't exhaustive by any means, but they're a good start. First, contrary to what many of us might think, God thinks that sex is good. Genesis, first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were naked and unashamed. Now, this is before the entrance of sin into God's good creation. You see, sex in and of itself, it's not dirty. It's not impure. It's not even neutral. It's good. Right? Anything that God makes is good. And think about it. God made our brains. He made our parts. He made our bodies. And so, therefore, they are good. The Old Testament book of Song of Songs, it is a book that discusses very openly and unapologetically the joys of sex between a married man and a married woman. And so it's not bad. It's, it's good. Second thing we know about, need to know about God's vision and intent for sex is that God meant sex to be enjoyed in the context of a marriage between one man and one woman. This is Jesus speaking in Matthew 19, starting in verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, interesting, Jesus goes back to Genesis 2.24, the verse that we just read there. So, verse 6, They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, I get it. I know how unpopular this is in our culture today. I know how naive it might seem uh, among Christians even. But these are the words of King Jesus. He's reigning. He's ruling. He's in control. And so he gets to decide who sex is for and when it is to be enjoyed. Not you and not me and not our culture. The final thing to know about God's vision and intent for sex is that God created sex to be a pointer to something bigger. 
In Ephesians 5, verse 31, Paul says this, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Genesis 2.24, there again. In verse 32, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. What Paul is saying there is that sex, it has horizontal dimensions to be sure between two people. Sex is about two people horizontally, absolutely. But this verse teaches that it it points to something bigger. It points to something better. There's a vertical dimension. You see, Paul is saying that sex between a man and a woman in marriage is a mysterious and profound picture of Christ's love for the church, for his people. I like how Tim Keller says it in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. He says, sex is God's appointed way for two people to say reciprocally to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. If that reciprocation of belonging exclusively to another person, man, that captures and then embodies the reality of Jesus' love and his sacrifice and his service for his people. You see, sex is a pointer to a bigger and a better reality. But as we just saw, and as you probably know, not everybody believes that about sex. Others will, intentionally or not, tell you lies about sex. I had three lies I wanted to talk about, but I've only got time to to talk about two. Here's the first lie. Porn doesn't affect me, and it doesn't affect others very much. That's a lie. Porn affects you. We're learning more and more every year just about how pornography alters the landscape of our brains. When we watch porn, it releases a couple of different chemicals in our brains. The first is, is dopamine, and many, many people call this the pleasure chemical. And, and dopamine, it plays a significant role in reinforcing behaviors like eating and drinking and, and sex. And so when we watch porn, we are literally in our brains being conditioned to keep watching more. Another chemical that's released is oxytocin. And this chemical, it it deepens our emotional attachment to another person. Oxytocin is actually what is released in a baby when they breastfeed. You see, this chemical is designed to get us to bond with another person. And so this explains a couple things. First of all, why there's no such thing as casual sex. It's literally impossible because we are being bonded to another person, whether we want it or not. But it also explains why there's no such thing as casual porn. We are being bonded, but not to a person, but to a screen. Nancy Piercy is an author, and she wrote a great book. It's called Love Thy Body. She says this, The evidence is in. Greater supply of the stimulant equals diminished capacity. Pornography works in the most basic ways on the brain. It's Pavlovian. And orgasm is one of the biggest reinforcers imaginable. If you associate orgasm with your spouse, a kiss, a scent, a body, that is what over time will turn you on. But if you open your focus to an endless stream of ever more transgressive images of cybersex slaves, and that's what it will take to turn you on, the ubiquity of sexual images does not free love or erotic love, it dilutes it. Porn affects you, but it also affects others. Uh, hopefully you know that it's likely the majority of, of women in pornography videos are forced into doing what they're doing, that they're quite literally slaves. And, and your consumption of that video is what is keeping that in person, that person enslaved. There was a, a recent Washington Post article that declared that porn is a public health crisis. They did a content analysis of best-selling and most rented pornography films, and they found that in those movies, 
88% of the scenes there, they contained physical aggression, mostly towards women. And as a result, they did a follow-up study of people who rented and watched these. They asked these people, and as a result, those who watched mainstream porn said they were more likely to commit rape or sexual assault if they knew that they wouldn't get caught. Maybe most disturbing of all, many women are watching porn so that they can start to learn what men want sexually. Again, Nancy Piercy in, in her book, Love Thy Body, Girls and young women are under a lot of pressure to give boys and men what they want, to become a real-life embodiment of what men have watched in porn, adopting exaggerated roles and behaviors and providing their bodies as mere sex aids. Growing up in today's porn cultures, culture, girls quickly learn that they are service stations for male gratification and pleasure. This is sad, and it's not the way it's supposed to be. Porn affects you, and it affects others. But here's the, the second lie that we, that we oftentimes hear. I have to be sexual or be invisible. I'm getting that lie from a sociologist and a woman's professor, woman's studies professor named Gail Dines. She wrote an article called The Pornification of Young People, where she talks about the effects of pornography and, and that it has on others. And she says that when young girls watch pop star role models or lingerie on stage or in videos or in a concert or in a Super Bowl halftime show, and when they see them strike overtly sexual poses on magazine covers or in social media posts, it continuously presents these girls with one of two choices. I have to be overtly sexual or I have to be invisible. To quote her directly, what kind of choice is that for a teenage girl when wired into the DNA of an adolescent is the need to be seen? As a result of this choice, many young women, they feel the pressure to dress, pose, and present themselves in increasingly more and more sexualized ways. And so, based on her conclusion, even though women, they may not watch porn, they are definitely being influenced by porn culture. Now, again, I, I realize what I'm saying, it might be offensive uh, to some people. I realize some of you might tune me out because I'm not a woman, and therefore I don't have any right or any, yeah, any right to say such things or even question them. The only response I can say is, is you're exactly right. I don't really know the full extent of what all those experiences are like. I don't know what it's like to be a woman in a boys-will-be-boys culture. Uh, where sexual misconduct and abuse uh, might have been overlooked or, or minimized. I don't know what it's like when uh, to be a product of a culture where men have all the power sexually and all too often use it as a means to force women uh, to get what they want. And so I, I hope you hear me say, as much as I can through a screen, that I'm sorry, that it shouldn't be that way. I hope you hear me say that I want better for anybody watching or listening to this sermon who's been a victim of sexual abuse. I'm sorry, that's not how it should be. I want better for you. I want better for anyone who's carrying that oppressive weight of facing unfair and unjust choices like we just heard. Do I be sexual or do I be invisible? Not only do I want better for each of you, I want better for my eight-year-old daughter. You know, it, it breaks my heart that she's going to have to one day, unfortunately, face the pressure of that choice when she grows up. It shouldn't be that way. I want my daughter, and I want my two sons, and I want all of you and myself, we need to be aware of these worthless and these empty lies that the culture, that people, that others are saying about sex. 
You see, we don't have to make that choice. You don't have to make that choice between do I be sexual or invisible. There's hope for another way. And that's our third and final truth that we need to know about sex in order to follow Jesus, that there's hope for change. Ephesians 5.8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Paul reminds us who we truly are in God's eyes. You see that phrase, child of light, it's just another saying, another way of saying that we're sons and daughters of God's. We're his people. And the only reason that he can view us that way is because of the sacrifice of Jesus. In 2006, there was a Navy SEAL named Michael Mansour. <clears throat> excuse me. And he was charged with rooting out enemy fighters in a city in Iraq. And while he and three others were in uh, this post, uh, a sniper post, a grenade was suddenly lobbed into their midst. And without hesitation, just like that, Michael threw himself on that grenade and he absorbed the blast. He was killed instantly, but he saved the life of his three other SEAL teammates. You see, Michael paid that ultimate sacrifice out of love. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think those three other seals on that roof that day, do you think they questioned whether Michael loved them or cared about them or treasured their friendship together? No. No, of course not. Why? It was because of Michael's sacrifice for them. And that sacrifice silences any of those voices of doubt in an instant, just like that. If Michael Mansour's sacrifice has that much power, how much more power does Jesus' sacrifice have? John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And that's what Jesus did for you and for me. Do you question God's love for you? Do you wonder how you could still be loved by Jesus after all that you've done? Do you worry that you're going to be forgotten, that you're going to be overlooked, that you're going to be discarded? Do you use sex as a way to get noticed? as a way to get validated? Do you consume pornography to cope with stress and insecurities, to get control in a world that is out of control? Do you believe that your past, your present, and even your future sexual sins disqualify you from his presence? The sacrifice of Jesus is God's answer to our questions. Jesus loves you. He has not forgotten you. Yes, you may be forgotten. You may be overlooked. You may be passed up by somebody. And that's hard. But you haven't been overlooked or passed by or forgotten by Jesus. You see, you and I, we don't have to use sex to get validation, to get comfort, to get control. Because Jesus gives us the security that we need and that we were made for. And it is more satisfying than sex could ever be. Remember, Jesus died for you. He had you in mind on that cross. He hung up there and he said, I'm not going to come down. I'm not going to come down because if I do, then Josh and Reader and Sterling and Sinclair and Lauren and Alex and Kayla, and I wish I could say every single person's name that's watching this video, I'm not going to come down because if I come down, they're not going to know that I love them. So I'm going to stay up here and I'm going to sacrifice myself for them. And he didn't do that just for you or for me. He did it for his people and he did it for an entire world to bring the world back into, back, back to normal. You see, the sacrifice of King Jesus is the means by which we've been given access to God and to his kingdom. We are now new creations. We're freed from the kingdom and the rule and the reign of sin and darkness and we're welcomed into the kingdom of love and justice and mercy. We're new creations. 
2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, and the new is here. Thanks to Jesus' sacrifice, we're new. We're new people living under a new power, a new king, and we're able, therefore, to follow Jesus in our sexuality. So as we wrap up tonight, I want to just give us three practical things to do that's going to help us follow Jesus in our sexuality, for sure in the coming days of isolation, but even long after that. Number one, consider changing a habit. You know, if you're tempted to look at pornography on your phone late at night before your bed, before you go to bed, put your phone in the other room. If you say your phone's your alarm clock, buy an alarm clock. Those exist. They're called digital, right? Give your electronics to your roommate every night before bed. If you're being influenced by tons of shows that you know you aren't good for you, how about this? Stop watching TV. If you're in a relationship that is causing one or both of you to continually indulge in sexual sin, maybe it's time to break up. Maybe it's time to stop taking naps together. Maybe it's time to stop doing homework late at night together and sleeping over together. Or maybe you need to stop kissing altogether. And maybe it's time to get off Tinder or Instagram or Twitter. Or maybe it's time to... Get a, new, get a new phone, not a smartphone, a flip phone with the old T9. takes a while to text, but that's okay. Second thing to do, pray for amnesia. I know some of you have uh, sexual images and experiences that uh, from your past that are just continually scrolling through your mind. They come up during the day, you see something and it triggers you. I, I, I get that. Pray to God that you would forget those things. That those images would be sealed shut and stay out of your brain. Uh, pray that they would be wiped clean. Now, I know some of you have negative sexual experiences from your past uh, that have and continue to cause you a lot of shame and guilt and stress and anxiety, and it's not easy to move past. Now, I'm not saying that, that you should ignore those experiences or stuff them down, and nor am I saying that all you need to do is just pray and, and everything will be fine and you don't need to seek any sort of professional help, any sort of pastoral care. No, no, no. We need to process these difficult experiences with others that are safe and that we trust. And we need to seek any and all help that we can from other people. And yet, at the very same time, I wonder what would happen if right alongside all those efforts, we prayed that God would help us to forget them or at least help us to move on or be released from the control that they have in our lives. Last one, don't be an ostrich. You know what ostriches do when they get stressed, right? When they get scared, they just bury their head in the sand. I think that we have the same tendency when it comes to dealing with and fighting against sexual sin. We bury our heads, right? We, we take our eyes off God and his vision for sex, and we focus only on that particular sin, only on what I'm not supposed to do. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. But instead, we need to pull our heads from the sand. We need to look up at the sky, and we need to get some perspective. You see, it's not enough just to say no to our sin. We have to do that. But we have to say yes to something better. Several years ago, a man named Steve Callahan, he was lost at sea after a terrible boating accident. He was in this little rubber raft for 76 days, somewhere between Africa and the Caribbean. And even though he was emaciated and he was dazed and he was hungry, he managed to somehow take three pencils and, and kind of fashion them together to make what's called a sextant, which is just a navigational tool that allows you to use the horizon and the sun to kind of get your bearings. And so Steve Callahan, he was able to use the horizon to figure out where he was, and then he was able to ride the correct currents that would get him safely to the Caribbean. 
just as Steve looked towards the horizon for guidance when he was in the middle of uncertain waters, we too need to look to Jesus for guidance as we navigate the waters of sexuality. You see, sex is a good gift, but it's not the best gift. Sex is meant to be enjoyed in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. But remember, that's good, but there's something better. Sex is a pointer to something better. I'm not sure what the future holds for you. Maybe you'll get married, but maybe you won't. Maybe you're going to be faithful in your marriage for the rest of your life. Maybe you won't. Maybe you're going to get over this pornography addiction. Maybe it's going to be a struggle now until the day that you die. I don't know, but I do know that whatever joys and whatever hardships await you and I sexually, Jesus is going to be right there with us every step of the way. You're not damaged goods. You're loved. You're not too far from God. He's with you. It's not hopeless to fight against sexual temptation, even in the face of isolation and stress that awaits us. You and I, we are a new creation with a new king. And so together, let's look to Jesus as we fight to follow Jesus in our sexuality. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you so much for you. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you for your eternal word. Uh, Thank you that it is relevant. Uh, I pray that something that we heard tonight would, I don't know, make us change something. God, would, would you help those of us maybe to be thoughtful about how they need to repent of some sexual sin? Help us to be thoughtful about what changes we want to make. Most importantly, God, help us to pull our heads from the sand and to have a bigger and a better picture of your vision for us because you are better. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Hey, guys, thanks for watching. We love you and hope you have a great rest of the night. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Veritas Mizzou podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other people find our content so that they can be encouraged too. Most importantly, to get connected to Veritas, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again for listening.